In his book, The Prophetic Imagination, Dr. Walter Brueggemann says this, The prophet does not ask if the vision can be implemented, for questions of implementation are of no consequence until the vision can be imagined. The imagination must come before the implementation. It is the vocation of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination, to keep on conjuring and proposing futures alternative to the single one the king wants to urge as the only thinkable one. Time and time again throughout his ministry, Jesus enacted this kind of prophetic imagination. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus walked into the synagogue and announced that the year of the Lord's favor had come, that was prophetic imagination. Before any captives were freed, before any of the sight of the blind received their sight, Jesus announced that these realities were coming to pass in that very in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus looked out at the crowds and said, Blessed are you who are poor, hungry, weeping, and hated, that too was prophetic imagination. Jesus was proclaiming that the kingdom of God was coming in its fullness for them. That the old order of society where these people were at the bottom was passing away. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, that too was prophetic imagination. 500 years before this day, the prophet Zechariah penned these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus' method of entry into Jerusalem was no accident. He chose to enter the city on a donkey and a colt, knowing it would evoke this prophetic word from Zechariah. As he rode into the city, he was announcing to everyone that he was that king, the one who would cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, the one who would rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And the crowds knew it too, they are shouting Hosanna, not to just anyone, but specifically to the son of David, a title used to refer to one who would restore the kingdom of Israel to its fullness. They understood that the work Jesus had been doing for his entire ministry, the healings, the signs and wonders, the teachings, the confrontations with religious leaders, it wasn't just spirituality. It was political work aimed at social transformation. Healings that brought dangerous, unruly, and supposedly unclean bodies back into the communities that had rejected them. Signs and wonders that caused people to question the nature of power, 
who it belongs to, and what it can be used for. Teachings that challenge long-standing social, political, and religious traditions, confrontations with religious leaders in which he demonstrated that their authority was by their own design rather than by divine right. In the midst of a world where empire cast a shadow of numbness and death, Jesus' prophetic imagination opened a space for life and life abundantly. And so to be with Jesus, to follow Jesus, was to experience the vibrancy of life lived in the shadow of the coming kingdom of God, even though Rome was still in charge. Following Jesus meant allowing your imagination to conform to the prophetic imagination of Jesus and embodying radically different ways of being I think all of us want to be able to see the world the way Jesus did. We find this kind of imagination inspiring and compelling. Think of how we remember and celebrate folks like Harriet Tubman, Martin Luther King Jr., Thich Nhat Hanh, Jane Goodall. We look to them as prophets of their own age exemplars of what it means to live as though better things are possible. We want to believe that the world can indeed be transformed, that one day justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We want to have the same kind of imagination that Jesus did. We want to have hope. But for so many of us, there is something in the way. We lose someone. The systems we rely on to protect us fail us. We fail ourselves. Perhaps through the 24-hour news cycle and relentless social media algorithms, we simply see so much of the world's shit that it becomes impossible to believe that the world Jesus saw could ever be real. And then hopelessness becomes our lens for the world, rather than hope. On Monday, tragedy struck our campus. And soon after that, it struck elsewhere too. The school shooting in Nashville, the deadly blaze at the detention center in Mexico, tornadoes across the Midwest and the South. And in the wake of all of these things, many of you have been brave enough to say to God and each other that you do not know what to do, that these things feel out of your control, and that you cannot find hope. It can sometimes feel like these feelings of despair and hopelessness are themselves a spiritual failure. In reality, the opposite is true. Giving voice to our despair and hopelessness is not only healthy, but it can be a spiritual practice. In her book, Help, Thanks, Wow, Anne Lamont puts it this way. Prayer is taking a chance that against all odds in past history, we are loved and chosen and do not have to get it together before we show up. 
the opposite may be true. We may not be able to get it together until after we show up in such a miserable shape. Friends, this is indeed one of the paradoxes of our faith, that admitting we are hopeless is where we find strength. But God draws near to us in those moments and offers us companionship for the journey. And one of the gifts of Lent is that it is set apart as a season for us to do this work. We can do it at any time, but Lent gives us a focus and a framework for it. That we are dust, and to dust we shall return, powerless to stop it. And we do this work in community with one another, because by doing so, we create space for others to do the same. In the same book quoted earlier, Lamont says, If you had told me, you had said to God, It is all hopeless, and I don't have a clue if you exist, but I could use a hand. It would almost bring tears to my eyes. Tears of pride in me for the courage it takes to get real. Really real. It would make me want to sit next to you at the dinner table. This work of truth-telling and honesty during times of hopelessness and despair is important, perhaps even essential. But remember, friends, Lent is a season. It is not forever. Hopelessness can be a practice, but it cannot be our only we need the light of Easter as much as we need the darkness of Lent. Each year on Easter, we celebrate a unique and scandalous hope. The good and impossible news that Christ is risen, that everything old has passed away and everything has become new. Friends, Easter is coming. And even though it may feel naive, elusive, improbable, and maybe even impossible. I believe that hope, the hope of Easter, is what sets us apart as people of God. The hope that things can get better, that justice can and will roll down like waters, and even that the dead can live again. That is our inheritance. Prophetic imagination that cannot be overcome even by death itself. The hope that can change the world. And this hope is also foolish. It's a stumbling block to some. It is so dangerously outlandish that sometimes, as strange as it sounds, hopelessness is easier than hope. We can easily find ourselves using pessimism or cynicism as a shield against the riskiness of hope, especially when tragedy strikes. But in reality, this shield does not protect us from anything. It is only keeping us from seeing and spreading the light that is breaking through the darkness even now. Moments like the one we find ourselves in are not easy or straightforward. There's no one-size-fits-all spiritual solution. 
Some of us need to be brave enough to be hopeless, to allow God and our community to see us in our weakness. Some of us need to be brave enough to choose hope, to practice looking for the cracks where God's light is breaking through. And some of us may need to learn how to do both. As Jesus rode into the city, he rode knowing what would come next. He had already tried to prepare his disciples for his inevitable clash with Rome. He knew that his imagination would cost him his life. And yet he moved forward. He moved with the power of someone who trusted that whether he was at his highest heights or his lowest lows, he would not be alone. And friends, this is the invitation. Not to ignore our despair or to push away hope, but to allow ourselves to trust that God is with us no matter what. That there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from God's love. And this trust is the bedrock of prophetic imagination. It is the bedrock of our hope. And so I pray that God's Spirit would awaken this trust in all of us. That together we would learn to trust that God is for us and with us, even when we cannot see. Trust that this community is a place where you can bring your doubts, your fears, your questions, and even your despair. And in the end, if you can, trust also that Easter is coming that the darkness will not last forever, that a day is coming when even death itself will be swallowed up by God.